Hi everyone, welcome back to Can't Stop, Won't Stop, where we can't stop and we won't stop being warriors fighting for justice. I'm your host, Lindsay Ann. Last week, you learned a bit more about me and Dwayne, as well as Can't Stop, Won't Stop. This week, you will hear from the author of Front Row on Death Row and learn more about life on Death Row directly from convicted killers' mouths. Are you ready? Let's do this! This week was super special for me. Not all of you know that my brother, Steve Schoenveld, is the author of Front Row on Death Row, a book that was published in fall of 2020. You will not be sorry when you read his book and hear what it was like for him, a now middle school principal, to visit some of the most heinous criminals on death row in South Carolina. Steve Schoenveld brings you right through the prison gates and he uses his sense of humor, knowledge, and wit to keep you intrigued in his spellbinding book, Front Row on Death Row. You guys, take a listen. All right, you guys, so here's my brother. (laughs) You're an author, Steve. That's awesome. I'm an author. I'm your author. I am, kind of weird. Okay, so besides being an author, what are you? (laughs) I am a principal of a middle school in Charleston, South Carolina. So yeah, I don't... I don't write very much. It's my second thing. <laughs> thing. It's your second thing. Podcasting. Second thing. Podcasting is my first thing. Yoga is my second thing. <laughs> oh, okay. How do you pri- prioritize? How do you prioritize? I get paid for one, and I don't get paid for the other. So it's pretty simple. I get paid more for one than I do for the other. <laughs> much more. Much more. Yes. um, Okay, so you guys, I'm just going to jump right into it. And so, Steve, how in the hell, how were you able to get on to go to death row? (laughs) Good question. That's always the first question. Um, So years ago, uh, one of the first days of school, I had a parent who has two girls at the school. And uh, he was involved with a car chase in Charleston in 1999. Long story short, he ended up spend he ended up uh, well getting shot by the police actually, and uh, spent some time in the hospital. Then went from the hospital to prison for five years, four and a half years, and then he got out in two thousand four and uh, kind of turned his life around. And then he ended up going back into the prison that he served time in to mentor the inmates as a, a prison ministry type thing. So. Uh, we got to talking and I told him that I'd love to join him if I could um, one time just because I was curious about the prison and stuff like that. So he invited me to come with him and I ended up spending... Hold on. Hold on. I'm going to stop you for a minute. Can you go back sure. to when when he approached you, where he approached you and how he approached you on, on one? I think oh. that's an interesting... 
Yeah, so it was one of the first days of school. So, I mean, you're, you're out in the lobby, you know, fist bumping kids and welcome. Everybody's happy. And yeah, he approached me and asked me if I wanted somebody to come into the school and talk to the kids about drugs and violence and things like that. <laughs> so, you know, initially I said, no, thank you. And, uh, but he was very persistent. He kept doing it, kept doing it, kept doing it. And uh, the way he said it, he said that he's been on both sides of the law, both sides of the gun, and he'd want to um, share his story and help kids. So then, you know, I was intrigued after that. And then he just told me to Google him. So fortunately, unfortunately, I Googled him. And Did you say learned... his full name again so they know? So, so his I, name you guys, yeah, you guys, I highly suggest you Google him. Yeah, his name's Ron Burris, B-U-R-R-I-S. You just Google him and put Charleston, South Carolina after it, you'll, you'll get a whole bunch of things. Um, so I did that and read up on his story and, and what happened years ago. Um, so then after that, I, I asked him to come in and talk and talk to me more about it. So that's kind of how it all got started. Okay. Thank you. <laughs> I, I think that's interesting that he came into an elementary school and just was like, hey, can I talk to your kids about... <laughs> Yeah. Drugs and violence. <laughs> Maybe. Yeah. I mean, he, he and I have since gone into schools and talked about this sort of thing, but not, not elementary. <laughs> right. Okay. So, sorry. So, so then he's the reason he's, he's the reason that got you there. Um, yeah. yeah. So I ended up, I went with him, I think it was a Friday and we, uh, I, I really had no, no expectations. I didn't know what was going to happen. Um, like I said, this was a, a prison ministry at, at this point. Um, so I ended up spending close to 12 hours in the prison that, that day. And when I was in the prison, um, in the chapel, uh, another volunteer <clears throat> came up to me and, and asked me if I wanted to go give the guys on death row cookies. That's what he asked me. <laughs> uh, I'm sorry I'm laughing, but I think that sounds hilarious. <laughs> it's funny. Yeah. You can laugh. You guys want to come with me and give? Do you want to come with me and give the inmates some cookies? Yeah, and I have no idea. Response is the best. He only asked me. I have no idea how he picked me. I I I wasn't sitting with this guy. I have no idea (laughs) why he asked me. I really don't. Um, So then, yeah, he asked me if I wanted to go and give them cookies, and I asked them if they liked cookies because (laughs) I didn't want to do anything they didn't like. He assured me that they would like the cookies. So I grabbed one of the garbage bags full of cookies. He grabbed the other one and there was another guy as well. There's three of us that went back there that day. Ron was not with me and I was just with two, two strangers and two bags of cookies. Going to death row. Like what? <laughs> yeah. So then we left, we left the chapel and went, um, you know, walked through the yard and had to go through seven, eight gates. And uh, yeah, then we got to the the big door that says death row on it. And that was it. When you work in the yard, though, when you're walking into death row, Mm -hmm. do people like size you up? Like, that's what I picture. I picture if anyone comes in, I picture them staring at you like, who is this? What is he doing? You guys keep an eye on him. Like kind of like, yeah, well, we were coming from the chapel and I guess maybe they knew it was volunteer. I don't know. Like, I don't know 
if they knew it was um ministry day or i, I don't you know don't have like a, you don't have like an orange vest on that says like i'm a volunteer oh. don't touch me i'm a good guy i believe in god like like i believe in god <laughs> <laughs> no there's nothing on me that said i believe in god um there was no i can't honestly i can't remember if i had a name tag on at that point or not i think i did you did no, make just, inmates know your name yeah so i think i did um but no, I mean, there's a line down the sidewalks, um, parallel with the sidewalk, down the middle of the sidewalk. So like it separates right and left like a road. Um, and the inmates have to walk on the right side. And I was following those rules. But and then Ron told me. Wait, as an Ron, inmate? Huh? You were following the rules as if you were an inmate? I was just walking on the right hand side. I just thought that was what you did. <laughs> and then they told me that I was not an inmate and I didn't need to follow that rule, but I would, I, I wasn't going to take any chances. So yeah, that's how it happened. And then we uh, got to death row and um, Tony, Tony was the guy's name, the, the volunteer, the original volunteer. And then he told me that he likes to spend a lot of time in there. So for me to just start over there and he pointed to the left and he likes to start over there. And then I realized that he wasn't going to, no one was going to be with me. So he told me to just give them a cookie and they'll start talking. <laughs> yeah. Sorry. I'm laughing, but that just sounds, you guys, that sounds ridiculous. Like here, give them uh, a cookie. It, and it just, yeah. In your analogy that you'll bring up later fits perfectly with the whole cookie thing, like with the dogs going into a pet pet store. So anyway, okay. Yeah. So you go to the left and he went to the right? I went to the left and I went upstairs. But um, you're by yourself. He went to the right. Right. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So he had his people. I mean, he was already established in there. Like he had been there a lot. So he had his people that he liked to go to and who he felt comfortable with talking to and who wanted him to come so he was already used to that I, I I was not obviously so I I don't know I just went up the stairs to the left and started walking around you know you're just kind of thrown in there like that you gotta either I really have an option it's either just sit there and don't do anything and or start walking around and see what happens so that's what I did what color shirt were you wearing do you remember yeah, I was wearing a red, like, Under Armour type golf shirt. Could they see your pit stains? Like, your... Well, yeah, that was... Running? Yeah, I mean, when you wear a, right, a red dry fit <laughs> shirt, you can... You can... That was poor choice. Looking I, I would have been sweating profusely. <laughs> yeah, I would have gone with black if I knew we were going to be doing cookie delivery in death row, but I didn't know that. So, yeah, one of them actually asked me why I was sweating and that's that's in the book i i think he I asked me why i was sweating and i told him it was a combination of being extremely hot adrenaline and, and being very nervous and <laughs> told me that i really didn't have anything to be nervous about so that helped <laughs> okay great <laughs> yeah yeah so yeah yeah um okay so in it, and we'll get we'll get back, you guys. I'm gonna get back into more of his conversations um, with the inmates. But there are 37. There were 37 inmates on death row when you went. 
and you you say in the book that you only shook the hands of 34 of them mm -hmm. why why only 34 why didn't you shake the hands of everybody so when you if you could picture if you're looking at the cell door um obviously all the doors are closed and there's a there's a window about eye level that's about maybe a two foot by two foot square so the person looking in can open it or close it so the guards can open it or close it they don't have control over that flap that opens up mm. um so one of them one of them their their flap was closed and it was had a padlock through it so it couldn't couldn't be opened <laughs> um so i couldn't i couldn't have any opportunity to to shake his hand he he was uh he was a school shooter he was the only school shooter in there so he shot it was like 1988 maybe 89 in greenwood south carolina he killed some uh elementary students <sighs> so he he was a mess i mean you could tell he had issues i could see him i could see him i just couldn't couldn't talk or or shake his hand thankfully but okay i'm gonna stop you for a minute because i found i found that guy that one that's mr wilson yeah yeah and yep. so 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 what you wrote in the book it says i saw mr wilson who shot and killed two eight-year-old girls inside an elementary school i didn't shake his hand because he, his cell access window was always locked i could see him though and he appeared to be mentally ill he wore no clothes his toilet was filled with feces and urine, and the stench was unbearable. He was like a snake, lying motionless most of the time. When he moved, I watched. <laughs> He's been yeah. on death row since 1989. Yeah, 89. So, yeah, he was, you could tell he wasn't all there. I mean, like he was laying on his bed naked. I mean, just, it was, it was a mess. So that was, that was one I could not ever, he, I never saw his flap unlocked. Like it was, I, I guess it would just stay locked. I'm not sure, but so the other ones, um, there's a, there's a fenced off portion in death row, which is kind of hard to explain, but there's a chain link fence that squares off the corner of the room where the cell is closest to the corner. So nobody can get, nobody can get close to him. So what they do there, I did see him. You could actually give him his cookie though, because he would, he knew, like he knew what was happening and he had a broom and he would stick the broom, he would hold the broom handle and he would stick the broom out and then you would put the cookie on the broom <laughs> and he would reel it back in like he was fishing. So he, he, I don't think it was his first day in timeout. Let's put it that way. Oh my gosh. Was that yeah. Mr. Owens or Mr. Madi? Ah, that was Owens. That was Owens. So Owens, you guys, he killed a store clerk and later while in prison, strangled a man to death. And then Steve says, I didn't speak to Mr. Owens because he was, he was fenced off. He also assaulted prison employees with intent to kill, possessed weapons, damaged and destroyed property, threw bodily substances on others, and was an ex ex exhibition exhibitionist. <laughs> exhibitionist who masturbated in public. He's been on death row since 2003. Yeah. Yeah, he's not a very nice person. 
And then the the third one was Mr. Madi. Madi. He shot a police officer nine times before setting him ablaze. Yeah. Gosh, he had been on the run for killing a gas station attendant. And Steve says, I never spoke to him because his cell was fenced off. No one like me could get within five feet of him. He had attempted to escape multiple times, tried to kill a prison employee, and somehow got possession of weapons. I made eye contact with Mr. Mahdi, but was warned not to engage in conversation with him ever. He's been on death row since 2004. So those are the three people that he didn't um, have conversations with or shake hands, which I'm glad that you didn't shake their hands. <laughs> <laughs> Me too. Yes. So, so, um, so that is why uh, Steve spoke to 34 or shook hands to 34 of the 37 men um, on death row at Lieber Correctional Facility. So also, Steve, what I want to get at is that you talk a lot about the difference and uh, between sympathy and empathy. And I talk a lot about that too, a lot about mm -hmm. that. I'm constantly asking police officers, where's your empathy? Law enforcement, where's your empathy? Even people, um, just show us empathy. Can you explain a little bit more about your feelings on why you talk about that? Yeah, I never really thought about it until, you know, I heard people talking about, hey, you shouldn't, how do you have sympathy for these people? How do you, why do you do that? And really, it's, it's not, it's not sympathy for me. I mean, the difference is, you know, sympathy, you feel bad for people, you feel bad for what they're going through. Um, and that sort of thing. Empathy is, is the ability to put yourself in that position and try to imagine what it would be like. So empathy doesn't mean you feel bad for them. I don't feel bad for them. I, I just, you know, I, I'm able to now more than ever put myself in their shoes and, and kind of see what they're going through. That doesn't necessarily mean I feel bad for them. It just means that I feel for them or with them sort of thing. Yeah. You, you, can, yeah. you can put yourself in that position. So I think it's important. Yeah. yeah. I think it's important to know the difference and understand the difference between those two words. Cause a lot of times people say, say sympathy when they really, they mean empathy. Yeah. yeah. And, and I feel like, I feel the opposite. I feel like more people say, oh, I'm empathetic, but really they're, they're just sympathetic. They don't yeah. put themselves in that position, but, but they say, oh, I feel so bad for them. I'm, I have so much empathy for them, but you don't, yeah. you just feel bad. And, feel bad for them. Yeah. And, and it's not, not that one is better than the other. It's just, um, there's, there is a big difference between sympathy and empathy and, yeah. um, we both really try to make that clear. You wrote in your book, you quoted, I don't remember who you quoted or someone, but I, in quotes, it says, when you reach the heart, the head reacts responsibly. Yeah. I mean, you can't, you can't, I mean, especially in today's day and age, you can't, you can talk at someone as loud as you want and as long as you want, but you're not, you're not going to change their mind. Yeah. But and you really, it's hard to change someone's heart too, how they feel. But if you can get to that point, then usually if you can change how the heart feels, then the head usually reacts better. Yep. Okay. So in, in most people, there are so many people now, true crime is huge right now. And 
people are so curious about prison life and what it's like in there, but they just decide that, you know, watching TV shows or watching movies and satisfies their curiosity, but you actually acted on that curiosity. So what, what made you act on that? What made you actually go and take that step of seeking Ron out and saying, you know what, tell me more, come into my office, come tell me more. Yeah. Uh, I mean, it was, for me, it was, it was opportunity really. I mean, I don't know if, if I, if Ron had never come along, there's no way I would have ever had the opportunity to do it. So for me, it was an opportunity that, you know, I, I was, I'm fascinated by the prison shows, just like a lot of people. And, you know, when I finally had the chance to go in, like I said, I had no idea I was going to end up in death row. I thought I was just going to be spend a day in there and talk to the people who were chosen to come to this ministry thing. Um, So I knew I wasn't going to get the full picture. I wasn't expecting to go into any other part of the prison than that. So, I mean, I, I felt safe going in. I knew I was going with a whole group of people. And then all of a sudden I was in the belly of the beast with nobody. So for me, I really didn't have a whole lot of time to think about it, which I think is a good thing. Um, Yeah but it was more about the opportunity, but I need, I wanted to see if the TV and the movies, you know, portrayed what, what it's really like. I've never been in the general population dorms. I don't know. I can't speak on that, but, um, so that, that was, that was it for me. It was a lot of curiosity and I just had, was given the opportunity and not a whole lot of time to think about it. Even when Ron invited me, it was like two days before, it actually happened. I think it was a Wednesday when he said, do you want to go Friday? So I didn't have a whole lot of time. It was yes or no. And I decided to do it. Yeah. So, yeah. yeah. Well, I guess then leading off of that, I, let's, let's kind of go into <clears throat> a little bit about when you were, when you were with her, the, the inmates and, and what, so the difference between what we see I haven't been in, in to death row or been there and, and I have my envisions of it. Yes, it's been, it's been changed now since talking to you, but so many of us who have never had that opportunity to go in there, we have our visions of it and the visions are brought to us by the TV, by movies, by documentaries that really, I don't think portrait like the documentaries aren't necessarily true of death row itself might be of um life and life in prison you know but mm-hmm. not necessarily death row so i, I want to bring up a little bit about what the what the inmate said about the difference between what we see what we perceive mm-hmm. um death row to be like and what it really is so you there's a guy richard what's richard's last name richard moore more okay so richard moore says that he spends 23 hours and 40 minutes nearly every day in his cell and then 20 the 20 minutes that aren't in his cell is spent in the shower yes so so richard moore says that in what are they aren't they supposed to be and maybe if you aren't sure of the exact i don't want you to get in any trouble with any of this but are you, do you know what they're supposed to be allotted? I've never been able to find, you know, a, any, like any law or anything like that, any policy, but 
you know, I was under the understanding that they went outside every day or had the opportunity to go outside every day that they laughed at me when I told them that they would laugh at me and say, no, not even close. Um, So I think, I think that's probably one of the first things they lose. I mean, if they get in trouble, they probably take that away. And, um, but no, I I don't know the the official policy. It seems like it should be more than (laughs) what they have. And, you know, at the same time, you know, I struggled with a lot of some of this stuff too, because they could, they could tell me anything, you know, I had, had to believe them um, or I don't have to believe them, but you know, I, they could tell me anything. They don't, they didn't know me from anybody coming in that, you know, in the back of their minds, they might be thinking, what's this guy's agenda? Who's he work for? You know, all that sort of thing. So they could tell me anything. I, I got the feeling, you know, as, as time went on more visits that they weren't, making anything up I would I don't know why they would or what the motivation there would be so just just know that I do I do completely understand that not everything they they told me might be 100% true but I do believe that part because many of them said the same thing and I never saw anybody being let out I never saw anybody out of their cell the whole time I was there like I never saw any guards transferring people nothing so I do believe them on that. Um, so yeah, yeah there's so many you guys in in throughout this. Um, this it is hard for both me and Steve because you want to. We don't want you to think that we're for the death penalty. We don't want you to think that we're against the death penalty. I, I don't know, but this is what he observed firsthand, being there, and and I don't. Maybe, maybe they don't deserve to be outside, let outside their cell ever. Maybe, maybe they should be there for 24 hours, 24 seven. I don't know. We aren't trying to tell you what you should believe, but we're just telling you what happens and then you can come up with your own, (laughs) um, Mm -hmm. I guess, thoughts, thoughts on that. So that's what Richard Moore says. So chemo guy says, quote, People think we shower every day, shoot the shit, play cards with each other, exercise, go outside. It ain't even close to that. I can't wait to get to hell if that's where I'm going. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so they, they couldn't, I mean, you see the shows of, you know, inmates in the common area playing cards and whatever. They, they don't have any contact with each other. They're not out. They don't have any common area where they where they're all together it just doesn't happen they don't they they're not out ever so the only time that they can communicate with each other you know they can talk to the people next to them they can't see see the people next to them but you know that you've seen the thing with the mirrors and that they have mirrors and they'll hold out a mirror with their hand so they can see the person they're talking to next to them so that that does happen but no they're not they don't ever have the opportunity to do anything like that so no that's pretty crazy what about in the yard when they go out and I know they call them dog runs. That's what they call them. Do they, are they, do you know, are they all, ne- are they next to each other? I know they're fenced in, but can so, they talk then? As far as I, as far as I can tell or was told, they are next to each other and they can, they have chain link between them. So they're, they're covered on all sides, the top, everything. So they can't climb or anything like that, climb out. But, um, 
my understanding is that if there's two people outside at the same time that they can see each other and interact like that, but not just between a fence. Yeah. Okay. Uh, and then William Bell, he, mm -hmm. and, and somebody else too, I think it was Steven Stanko and I could be wrong, but I, but I, William Bell, I know said that death row is the best kept secret in the world. Yep. He did, which I, I agree. You know, I know what he was trying to say. I mean, they don't, he, he told me a story about everybody probably knows the show scared straight where they bring the kids in and try to scare them off their path, you know? So he was he was talking about that and he was trying to convince the warden to bring the kids back to death row because, you know, he said they come in here and they think what they see is the last stop. That's not the last stop. This is the last stop. So he was trying to convince the warden to bring them back all the way back. Well, they wouldn't do it. The closest they would bring them is into that little lobby area. Um, when you come in, mm -hmm. there's a, there's a, lobby area i don't know what else to call it with like the control booth and they control all the cells and then you have to pick whether you're going to go left or right 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 side of death row or left side so he said they would only bring them back to that spot they wouldn't bring them back to where where i was you know where the cells are so then they got bell and they brought bell to them so they would bring them out but they wouldn't for for whatever reason they wouldn't walk them through the actual death row i'm not sure why but so I think that goes along with the best kept secret in the world. They just don't want anybody to know for whatever reason, what it's like back there or, or what's happening back there. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and then Richard Moore also said, and I'm just going to read it, read it from your book, Steve. It says, I've never seen any death row footage on these shows, but I did see a red death row sign. That makes people think that we're all violent and causing trouble, but it ain't us on that show. It's the general population. It's the same with the news around here. When they report an incident here, they always say that Lieber is where all of South Carolina's death row inmates are housed. And then they show that red sign. Instantly, everyone thinks that whatever incident they're reporting happened here. Very true. I mean, I see the news here and they do. They when they would report on something at Lieber, they would they would all, always say that's where that's where death row is in South Carolina. So you're yeah. absolutely right. Yeah, and then in in Stanko, and I know you were talking to him about the the guy that killed a principal. Uh, we'll get into that, but and he said, Steve, you just got to know we're all conditioned not to show emotion years and years and decades and, de and decades of being in here. And he says, our exterior wall is thick. Yes. Yeah. So I mean, the, the situation you're referring to, I don't know if you want me to talk about. Yeah, go ahead. Why don't you, uh, yeah, why don't you tell it now? Yeah. So William Bell, um, he had been on death row for, I guess, 29 or so years when I, when I went there and he was, he asked me, um, he asked me a lot of questions, but one of them that I thought was good was he asked me, you know, when you, for people that know that you come back here, what are the questions that they ask you about us? So he wanted to know what people were asking about him. <laughs> so I told him, I said, a lot of people ask me, um, you know, if they're remorse, if you guys are remorseful. Mm. And I said, well, I don't know. I have no idea what you did or why you're here, but I can tell you have a, sense of remorse about you 
I mean, that just gives him a chance to say either yes or no. So he said, um, I do have remorse and I don't mind telling you what I did. And he went into this story about how there was three of them. He was one of the three. Um, they killed a elementary school principal while he walked to his car at night to go home. He had no clue who I was, or he, he had no clue what I did for a living. And I thought he was messing with me somehow. Like I thought <laughs> I didn't know what, what was going on. So, uh, sorry. And uh, I let him go through the whole thing. He explained the whole crime. They were going to the club. They saw this guy's car out in front of the school. Um, they tried to get into the car. One of his, he said one of his buddies tried to get into the car. He convinced them not to. They started walking to the club. They heard gunshots coming from the club. They decided that they didn't want to get into all that that night. So they turned around to walk back. Um, his buddy wanted to know who was in the school that late at night. Um, so they kind of walked around the school. The principal ended up coming out. They were going to rob him. They robbed him and the guy ended up getting shot a couple of times and died. And then, so that's the story of that. And he didn't really react at all how I thought. He just said, um, great, good for you. You know, I said something like that. And I was kind of shocked. Like he didn't seem to, to get the irony or maybe the coincidence of that. So then what you're referring to, then I told um, Stanko, which is another inmate, um, I told him about that. And he that's when he started to go into the exterior wall thing. And he's not going to show any emotion. You're not going to get the emotion that you would expect because of that he's been conditioned we've all been conditioned to not show emotion um so that's that's how that happened yeah yeah but it's crazy like how can you not just be like oh shit you're <laughs> like that could have been that could have been you and i mean yeah i know and it, it it goes to the well in in bell's defense the next time i went in there uh i did I did talk to him like I always did. And I told him, I said, Hey, I just got to tell you, I didn't, I, you didn't give the reaction that I, that I had expected or see that. And he said, well, after you left, I sat on my bed and thought about that for the longest time. And I just couldn't figure out why, you know, why did we meet? Why is that? You know, he just didn't believe in the coincidence part or he thought there was something bigger to that, which, was a relief to me because then he actually did have some feelings about it. That's what I was going to ask. Like, do you feel like that is remorse or do you feel like it? I don't know. It's hard to tell. I mean, I don't know. <laughs> hard to I know tell. it's, it's really hard to, to talk about this. He was stuff very, that... he was very well spoken. He was, he'd been there for 29 years. He'd never been to, to jail before. He'd never been to prison before. Yeah. That was his first time in trouble. And he went straight from straight to death row, which is kind of hard to fathom. Um, yeah, you and, heard about that. He writes about that in the book, you guys, where, he, where William Bell went from never getting in trouble. He said, he says, I've never seen inside the prison yeah. except death row. That's and all he's, never been, he's never been in general population. Never. Yeah. General population. He is now. He is now. So yeah, he got his, his death then. sentence. He got his death sentence overturned and now he's serving life. And so he's in a different prison uh, in general population now. 
Okay, so that, oh, but before we get into that, because then I want, that will bring us into the next part about taxpayers' dollars and being exonerated and, and all that. But um, I, I have here in your book where it says, so this is William Bell's day. <laughs> this is what he tells mm -hmm. me. Yeah. He starts his day at 2 a.m. And he does 200 burpees. 300 push-ups and 200 cur arm curls, which you guys, for arm curls, he uses a bucket of water with a torn off bed sheet wrapped around it for handles. And, yeah. and then he, he rests and reads from 4 to 6 a.m. And then that's when the guards are, are changing shifts. And then breakfast at 8 a.m. And then he takes a shower if it's permitted. <laughs> and then recreation if they're allowed going out to the to the dog run he said and that can happen maybe three times a week mm -hmm. uh 9 to 11 a.m he watches television or listen, listens to the radio he says he loves young and the restless <laughs> yeah they still, still in, <laughs> in star trek right yeah so, uh, not... gun smoke um he, he likes westerns Mm -hmm. And he said, Star Trek comes on at 8 p.m. Yeah. <laughs> Lunch is served from 11 a.m. to 12 p.m. Supper is served at 5 p.m. And yeah. And he goes so to then, bed. And then he goes to bed to wake up at 2 a.m. Yeah. That's his day. And you guys, and I, I don't think he deserves a better day. I, I'm not saying that at all. And, and I have, I am not putting my... I mean, I will, I'll share some of my, my opinions on this later on in the episode, but I'm just telling you, and my brother is just telling you what is coming from their mouths and what they have said and what they say happens in there. Doesn't mean that we agree with it. Doesn't mean that we think that it's ridiculous that um, they only get three, maybe three days to get outside. I don't know what is right. I don't have a feeling on, on whether they deserve more time than that, less time than that. I'm, I'm not sure on that. And I think Steve, you, you feel the same way, uh, right? Yeah. I mean, what people deserve is, is a hard, yeah. is a hard thing to answer. I mean, I, I don't know. <laughs> yeah. I agree with yeah. you. I don't yeah. know. I'm not, I don't say that any of this is right or wrong. I didn't, I didn't see any things that were terribly alarming in there, you know, nothing bad from the guards, nothing from the prison. I mean, I feel like they're doing what they can. I don't know. Yeah, I agree with you. But it's just a secret. It is the secret. And why? That's what I have an issue with is why is it such a, such a secret? Why do people not know everything that's happening because we pay for that and that's where i'm going to flip into now is getting into um exonerations and and the taxpayers dollars because there's so much behind that that i think that a lot of people don't realize and that they don't know and so i guess what i want to say is why do you feel that it is so important for everyone to know that condemned men that are living in South Carolina's death row, where you were, are that are condemned in the name of every citizen in the state. It's not just the name of the warden, you know, or the, the, the guards. It is every person in the state. Why, why do you feel that that is? You, you mentioned that a few times in the book. Like, yeah. 
So I think it's important. I mean, when, when, when people go through the justice system, I mean, you know, trials, you're being judged by your quote unquote peers. Um, so then they're speaking on everybody's behalf because, you know, when you go, they say it's, I'll use Richard Moore. It's Richard Moore versus the people of South Carolina. Yep. So, I mean, the trial is us against him. Um, and so obviously not everybody can, can have their say in that. So then you have a jury of 12 of their quote unquote peers. Um, and then they're speaking for us. So the same is happening when someone gets executed, when someone gets executed, they're doing it. Uh, this it's the state of South Carolina who's executing somebody. So I live in the state of South Carolina. I'm a constituent. I pay taxes. So that's me that they're executing this person in the name of. So, you know, if I don't agree with that, then it doesn't matter. So don't, don't execute people in my name. Um, but I know that's the system and there has to be a system, but I think it's important you know, a lot of people, when this happens, they, they, the one reason I think they want to keep it a secret is because they don't want people, they don't want anybody to stir up trouble. They don't want any, they just want to do their business and go home. Uh, so they don't want people to have any strong opinions one way or the other, I don't think, um, or they don't want to talk about it anyway. So I think it's important because, you know, it's just like any other issue, you know, in politics and things happen and you may not vote for that, but that's your governor. That's your president. Even though you didn't vote for that person, maybe he's still, or he or she is still that person and you can't do anything about it. So if people are killing other people in our names, I think that's an important issue to talk about. Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. And, and so, so my brother, he lives in you know South Carolina, clearly they have the death penalty, Michigan, we don't have it. And I, it's, I don't know. I feel it, it's hard to say what we believe in and what I believe in uh, after now having my sister-in-law <laughs> murdered um, for no reason at all. Not that it, even if there was a reason, not that it makes it any better, no one deserves to die, but do I wish Michigan had the death penalty? I don't know. I, I don't know the right answer for that. I'd, I'd have to educate myself more on it, but I think it's huge to, to make, make sure that people are aware that it is in your, each and every one of our names. Because yes, every time that Egypt, it, it's so true. We're in the state, it's Tim Moore versus- The people. The people of Michigan, yes. Mm -hmm. Yes. And that's exactly right. And I didn't, I, I mean, yeah, it's, it's crazy. So, so in your book, thing. yeah, it, so that's what I was getting at now. So then in your book, you say each, um, each death row inmate costs taxpayers about $90,000 uh, per more, more, not $90,000, but $90,000 more per year than a prisoner in general population. You guys, that's insane. And in, in, in Lieber, there were 37. Well, just one of them, if, if one of them was in there for 29 years, like, who was it, Bell? That was in for 20, yeah. 29 years. That's 
$2,610,000 more. more than what they would There's spend. There's a lot, a lot, of, a lot of reasons for that. I mean, none of these guys have roommates. So the cells and the cell block is as big as a regular one. It requires the same amount of guards, but they're guarding half the amount of people. So they can't put a cellmate with them, which would save space and money. Um, so that's one reason. Uh, all the appeals um, that go along with it is the biggest reason. I mean, they can go through seven appeals, seven steps before they get are up for being executed, before they exhaust anything. So, I mean, it could take 29 years to get through those appeals, which it did for Bell. So. Yeah. All of those appeals require lawyers and hearings and all this stuff, evidence collection. So that that's the major reason why it costs so much more. Um, transport, transporting them. So every time they have to go to court or they have to go get medical attention outside the facility, they have to be um, taken there, obviously. And typically, general population, they'll chain, I mean, Ron talks about this, how he's chained to other people and then they're all on this bus together. Well, they don't do that for death row because they're, um, you know, more dangerous. They're portrayed as being more dangerous. Yeah. Yeah. So they, they'll transport them, um, in a car with two officers and then they have a lead car with more officers and then they have a trail car with more officers. And it's just, it's over the top. It's over the, in my opinion. I mean, if it's necessary, then it's necessary. If you've got a dangerous inmate who has a history of uh, going haywire, then do it. Then do it. I'm all for it. But I don't think it's, if you're not going to do it, there's lots of murderers in prison. Lots of murderers in prison. They're not on death row. Um, so they don't do it for all murderers. They just do it for all, all people who are on death row. So there's a lot of reasons for that. But I think, you know, if you, if you can, you know, for the states that don't have death row, they're not, they're not doing that for, for a lot of their inmates. Yeah. And that's what, um, I think it was William Bell who said that exactly what you said, they they have cars in front and behind and, and five, mm -hmm. whatever. So he says they have five officers. He's handcuffed with a black box on the cuffs between his hands so he can't move them front to back side to side or up and down he has a belly chain connected to those cuffs his hands are strapped to the chain right up against his stomach and his legs are chained and they still have all those guards and you guys like steve said if that's necessary absolutely do it if it's not necessary why are we doing it for every single death row inmate and spending tax dollars so they were driving i think and correct me see if i was wrong but i i want to say it was about a two-hour drive to get to the hospital yeah it's not two hours it's more of like an hour so they okay. leave it out in the middle of nowhere and then they go to columbia which is uh, okay. in the capital so it's not two hours but it's about an hour probably and in it you talk about a, a situation where they took one of the inmates there just to tell him that your appointment has been rescheduled. Yeah. So, so, yeah. so you guys, yes, I think these guys are horrible. They've done heinous, terrible crimes. They should be tortured. They should be, I, I, I believe that they should not get anything 
no cushion, nothing. I think that they should be handcuffed tightly, all of that. I highly agree with all of that, uh, all of it. What I don't agree with is using taxpayers' dollars to do all of this, have these five officers, these cars, paying the gas money to drive an hour to the hospital and an hour back just to sit him down and say, oh, I'm sorry, you need to come back in two weeks. Your, your appointment has not been only, scheduled. Not only that, but then they do all that and then they um, complain that they are, have a shortage of staff for corrections officers. Why do they have a shortage of staff? Because they pay them $25,000 a year because they don't have any money. So, I mean, there's other ways you could, you could use that money in my opinion. Um, but there's a lot of, a lot of different things that could be done. For sure. For sure. Uh, so you also noted just going back on to kind of numbers of, of death row. And, um, I think this is a really interesting point that you bring up in your book is that you say it's, uh, interesting to note that more than 150 death row inmates nationwide have been exonerated since 1976, and that's the year that the death penalty was reinstated in the United States. In that same amount of time, states have executed more than 1,400 people. So you guys, that means that every 10 people executed in this country since the death penalty was reinstated at least one has been exonerated for the basic charge that landed all of them on death row. Then you bring up that if one can of beer is spoiled in every 12 pack that the beer truck delivers, then that store would stop selling the particular brand. <laughs> yep. But, no go ahead. No, you're right. I said no question. Yeah. Yeah. So, but, so, if statistics actually mean anything, then there is a 100% chance our judicial system executes people for crimes they did not commit. And that is- Yeah, it's hard to believe that that's never happened. Right. And if, if one person, if one innocent person has been executed, then it doesn't work. Then the death penalty doesn't work. 100%, I agree with you. Doesn't work. Yep. Can you imagine being strapped to the electric chair or a gurney about to get a lethal injection and you're the only person that knows that you didn't do it and you're about to die. You're about to die for a crime you didn't do. And you're the only one who knows it. I can't imagine. And that, that brings us to Egypt's case. I mean, you know, it, like who knows what would have happened if to Kenny, to her, to her ex-boyfriend, if, we had enough time to allow, and I'm not saying this would have happened, but it could have happened. And what I've seen in, in law enforcement, they could have somehow finagled and made sure that, that Kenny was put away. Yes, Michigan yeah. doesn't have the death penalty. I, I, I know that. Mm -hmm. He could have been one of those statistics. And yeah, he, I mean, it's human error. I mean, human error yeah. happens, but you can't, you can't make life and death decisions without life and death accuracy can't do it no i i 100 percent. i know i know i agree so then you write on top of that because all the appeals permitted in death penalty cases which is a lot they get a lot of appeals um yeah. it costs an estimated 1.1 million more above that 
2.6 million that I just talked about in taxpayers' money after someone is sentenced to execution than it does for him or her to receive life in prison. Because that- the appeals, the appeals are important. I mean, the appeals are there because people have accepted the fact that this is a very important issue and we need to make sure we get it right yeah. before we kill this person. So the appeals are important, but they're, but they're very, very expensive. So, I mean, it's a catch 22. Do you want to, what do you want to do? Get away with the appeals and then whatever the first jury says goes, well, no, that's not, that's not the way to go because there might've been a mistake and not just murder, but lots of charges get dropped and things like that later on because of mistakes made. So the appeals are important, but the cost of them is astronomical and, you know, if the jury would have sent this person to life in prison without the possibility of parole, that'd be it. That'd be it. And I think in this, <laughs> I, I believe this, and maybe people aren't going to, well, I'm sure people won't agree with me on this, but you might get a young, you talk, someone talks about this in your book, you might get mm. a young new judge or a judge that hasn't had a death penalty case under his belt or her belt, and they want to have that and you're the unlucky guy or girl that gets that, that judge and they just want to be able to say they did that. And right. Well, and the, say, say prosecutor, not judge, because it's not the judge's oh, choice. I'm sorry. Yep. Okay. Yeah. The, the prosecutor will, will decide whether they want to pursue the, the death penalty and that. So, I mean, put yourself in the position say Michigan does have the death penalty and uh, these three guys on trial that are going to go to trial for Egypt's murder. So you know, your options are convict them and sentence them to death where you know you're going to have to relive this many, many, many times. You're going to have to go back in that courtroom at least seven more times, probably a lot more than seven. And you're going to have to fight the attorney, whoever they hire after they're convicted. You're going to have to explain to them why their conviction should stand up. So every year, every other year, every five years, you're going to have to go do this. There's going to be no closure. There's going to be no closure and you're going to have to fight it. And his attorneys, their attorneys are going to stand up there and tell you all the reasons that the first jury screwed up and that he shouldn't, they shouldn't be given the death penalty. So do you want to do that? Or do you want them sentenced to life in prison without the possibility of parole or I don't know the Michigan laws. Maybe that's not an option. Maybe they have to have somebody parole after 40 years or whatever, but whatever. Mm -hmm. So you don't, so say in 40 years, they get parole. You're going to be 81 and you're going to show up to their uh, hearing and tell the parole board, whether you want them to have parole or not. So that's the next thing you have to do, or you're going to have to go and, relive everything every few years because they're going to fight to get the death penalty overturned. I just don't see, I just yeah. don't see how that would be something that I'd want to do. Exactly. I, I agree. And, and William Bell, I know we brought him up a few times, but he's a, he's a great example of that. Is that for 29 years, this family of the victim, terrible, has had to relive what mm -hmm. he did to that clerk, to their loved one, they have to relive it. They have to show, you don't have to show up to them, but you, you at least know what's you happening will. at all of the appeals. You'd show up. Right. I'm just saying you don't have to, but yeah, 
but yeah, so, so you go to all these and at least you know what's happening for 29 years. He's on death row and you're thinking, okay, after this appeal, is he going to be, continue to be sentenced to death? Is he going to be life in prison or is he going to be free? Right. Have those. So yeah, I think it, it's. So the reason, the reason he got his death sentence overturned had nothing to do with guilt or innocence. It had nothing to do with that. The reason was is because you cannot, you cannot sentence someone to death and they still use this term in, in the court who's mentally retarded. So they, his defense attorneys were able to prove a mental health case. I don't know William Bell that well. I mean, I talked to him quite a bit. He seemed very <laughs> uh, smart. I mean, I mean, very calm, very, you know, if he was on this podcast, you'd have a great conversation with him. You would, you wouldn't know anything bad about him unless he told you. I mean, he's just a, and I can say that for a lot of them, it's just normal conversations, you know, no yelling, no. So anyway, he was able to prove that or his lawyers were able to prove that and the judge agreed to him. So he didn't, he didn't get life in, in prison because they found him innocent or anything like that. It was because he, you can't, you can't kill someone who's mentally retarded. Correct. Just the, the verbiage that they use. Right. Yeah. And he, and he is, that was a, he, you guys is the one that was a first time offender. So, and, and again, I'm not saying, I mean, I'm, I'm just putting it out there. It was his, I think it's interesting, Richard Moore's case. He's actually from Michigan. So that's kind of how we initially connected. Um, but he, this was 1999 as well, I believe. He walked into a convenience store to rob it. He didn't bring a gun. He didn't bring a weapon. The clerk, when he realized it was a robbery, the clerk had a gun. So the clerk pulled a gun on him, told him to get out or whatever. Well, Moore was able to wrestle the gun away from the clerk. So now, now Moore has the gun that the clerk had. The clerk pulled another gun that he had behind and shot him, shot Moore in the arm. And then Moore returned fire and shot the clerk and killed him. So he got the death penalty. So that was in 1999. He was, his jury his trial was in 2001 and he was the last man in South Carolina to be convicted. He's a black guy. He's, he was the last man in South Carolina to be convicted by an all white jury. So the prosecution struck all the black people from the jury. He had 12 white people that found him guilty and sentenced him to the, to death. I think that's an important case to look at because that doesn't even sound like first degree murder to me. I mean, he didn't, he didn't have a gun. He didn't bring a gun. And he didn't you know, first. first. First degree murder is premeditated. Like you went there to kill this person or you were prepared to kill this person. Yep. You knew that was an opportunity. You knew that could happen. Yep. He didn't go in with a gun. I mean, he screwed up. He should be in prison. He's right where he should be. But if that's the, oh, standard, if gonna, that's the standard for killing people, then there's a lot more people that we ought to be killing if that's our standard, in my well, opinion. 
if you're going to tell me that he intended to kill that person, Without that's, that's a hard sell for me because he didn't have anything to kill him with. You're right. Yeah. So that's, that's a pretty low standard for the death penalty, in my opinion. And that will bring us to, that will be interesting, you guys, next week. I'm going to talk a lot more. I'm going to dive so deep into Ron Burris's story and his lethal weapon was his car. So they can, even though they said that he had a gun when he didn't have a gun, you guys. So we're going to, we're going to get more into that next week and next week's yeah. episode, but I don't have a yes or no. Maybe they all deserve to be there. Maybe they don't. I just yeah. think that there needs to be uh, more, more looked, in, looked into to uh, people who, I mean, forensics, DNA, our system has changed so much. You, 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 you talk about this in the book too. So much has changed over the years and of, of looking at cell tower pings, um, not saying that they had cell phones back when some of these murders were, but uh, so much DNA evidence, so much has changed in our, in our um, forensic labs and yet our judicial system, what, is what, has, what has changed? And I think that that's not okay. And um, I think it needs to be looked into and some of these guys I guess lucky for Bell he had his sentence to life in prison on his very last appeal mm -hmm. yep. some of these guys have already used up all of their appeals so they don't have that chance to now look into maybe what I would say maybe a quote fair trial and I'm not saying this to offend any families of these victims but no. um, the trials may have been fair that everything everything could have been done right yeah so there's three there's three of them that are that have exhausted all their appeals and they're just waiting for an execution date and Richard Moore is one of them that's kind of why he's on the he's been in the news a good bit just because he's his case is you know drawing some attention um the one I just told you about the the clerk he didn't bring a gun so he he's done his appeals are done um, so as soon as the South Carolina is ready, they are going to, um, execute him. And so just real quick, do you want to just tell them what South Carolina just now passed? <laughs> yeah. So now they, they used to be able to pick between lethal injection or the electric chair. Lethal injection is not available anymore because long story short, the drug companies will not sell it to South Carolina anymore because their name would be public. And they don't want that. So now, since the lethal injection is not available, they had to come up with another way because they have to give them a choice. So now they give they have the choice of elect, electric chair or the firing squad. So the firing squad just became legal here. So that's what they're waiting for. They're waiting for um, the Department of Justice to come up with the plan for the firing squad. And once they have that, they're going to resume executions. So then they'll be able to pick between firing squad or, or electric chair. And that's it. They won't be able to pick at all the lethal injection. So for sure they're not done. available. It's not, not available. Do you want to be on the firing squad? I'm going to, I'm going to keep my opinions to myself on that one. Do okay, I want look, looking for some people if you want to be on it. I can't imagine. I can't. I no. Can't. So that it's my understanding of the firing squad and I don't know if it's true or not. So, there's seven or so people standing around and 
whatever, like a crescent moon shape. Yeah. And then the individual standing there and one person, one or two people have a live round in their gun and the rest don't. And nobody knows who, who has the live um, round. And so nobody really knows who killed them. So I think that's how they get the people to participate in the firing squad because they can, they can justify it, I guess, by saying, well, I don't, I don't know if it was me or not. I don't know if I had the bullet or not. That's, I have, I have a lot of issues with that and I probably shouldn't go into it because I'll get too much hate email, but, um, wow. Okay. Uh, so, (laughs) so, um, what was your biggest takeaway from speaking with these men, these guys on death row? Biggest takeaway. Um, I was surprised at just the calmness and the content that I felt from them. And they seem to be okay with themselves for the most part. Um, they were very calm. They were very matter of fact. They were, you know, I felt towards the end, especially that I could ask them really anything I wanted to. Nothing was going to shock them. Um, nothing was going to offend them. Oh, I'm sure I, I did not initiate the conversations about their crimes. Um, they did. Most of them did, but I, I never really brought that up. Um, but I think it's just the fact that they're all still human beings. Um, and, you know, you see on TV and the movies, they're, they're all crazy. They've all lost their minds. They're loud. They can't do anything. The guards are fighting with them. I saw none of that. I didn't see any of that. The guards were, I rarely saw a guard on, on the, on the tier, the cell block when I was there, they were in the middle there. I don't really know what else, what they could have to do other than bring meals around and things like that. I mean, they're not, they're just in cells by themselves. Um, so I was expecting to see maybe a little more chaos. Um, and I just didn't, it was quiet, very quiet. Um, they were, most of them were willing to talk, happy to talk, you know, open about anything. I saw a lot of smiles, which I didn't expect. Um, I wasn't surprised at the, the intellect of some of them. I knew, you know, you hear from, you know, serial killers are very smart. They always say they're very manipulative. They're, they're able to get away with their crime for a while. Um, because they are smart and they they do know what they're doing mm-hmm. and I don't know I guess the serial killer is killing what three people or more yeah I don't really know the definition of a serial killer but there are by definition there are serial killers in there um you know I don't know if Stanko's considered a serial killer he he killed a couple people and and uh, slit his girlfriend's daughter's throat and assumed she had died, but she did not. So she was able to call 911 and do all that. So he was incredibly smart, incredibly smart, has written a couple books. Um, Oh, so all authors are smart. Yeah. Duh. (laughs) Duh. He was incredibly smart. He wrote a book. (laughs) Incredibly. He wrote a a book for God's sake. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. Look at you guys. No. So Steven Stanko, you guys can find on. Uh, he had a Dateline episode, and he had forty-eight hours. Uh, yeah, Steven Stanko is a good one if you if you're interested in in um, 
and reading about any of these guys. Like you said, he's got 48 hours, Dateline, all that sort of thing. They all did, they all did episodes on him because, and I think because they emphasize it a lot, like how smart he is and how charming he is and all this stuff. So they ended up catching him outside of the masters in Augusta, Georgia. So he was on the run and went there. So he's a, he's a good one to read up on. Yeah. And I think you guys for sure look up um, Steven Stanko and it's, his name is spelled S T E P H E N Stanko. Um, not like my brother who's yeah. S-T-E-V-E-N. <laughs> um, Less but, letters is better. Yeah, yeah. But I think it's really interesting to note too, that they found him in Augusta, caught him there. And he, went there and took a girl out just so he could prove to himself that that he wouldn't that he wasn't feel, crazy right that he, that, he wasn't crazy, that he could do it yes he proved himself that he wasn't crazy that he could he was able to hang out with somebody and not kill yeah. them in that moment crazy right yes and then he that went girl he went to church with her there's surveillance that you'll see if you watch dateline i think it's the dateline they show him in church with this girl right after he went on this killing spree you guys and then this girl writes him a letter to lieber correctional when he's on death row and says thank you for not killing me that's what she said good for Mm -hmm. her and 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 then he wrote back he said he wrote back to her saying i wasn't gonna kill you you weren't in any harm fuck you bullshit (laughs) what if she would have said what i you know like no Mm -hmm. yeah it was it's it's a and, and my brother spent a lot of time with him in his book. It's really interesting. So um, I wasn't just, able, I wish, I wish I could have put more of him in the book. They, uh, they took a lot of Stanko out. The publishers did, which I get why, but he talked a lot about his crime and his defense. Um, and how like the, the court, the court side of it, which he's still going through appeals. So a lot of that stuff had to be taken out. Didn't want to hurt his case. Yeah. Yeah. So maybe, so maybe you can do front row and death row part two and yeah. tell a lot more about it. Once his appeals are done, it'll be interesting, but um, yes. I'm sure you'll have more books coming out on what, you know, but um, so just a few more questions, Steve. So has, has any family members does, reached out to you either from the victim's side or from the killer's side has anyone reached out to you that that has read your book and like hey you talked to my brother he's in he's in death row (laughs) nothing no no i haven't heard from any family members um on either side the only person kind of random like that i did hear from from a woman who lives in myrtle beach which is where stanko is from so she had read the newspaper article before the book came out and she called me at work Mm -hmm. and wanted to warn me to be careful around him and she claimed that she was one of his intended targets oh i don't know who knows if that's true or not but she claimed that and she she told me to be careful around him because he's very manipulative and and that sort of thing so that's that's the only person i've heard from yeah um i haven't heard from i would like to i mean i'd like to know what family members on both sides would think I, I i thought a lot about the victims and victims families when i was writing the book because you know they're they're the ones who i don't want to have any effect negative effect um with so 
-hmm. I did, I did think about them a lot. I didn't try to contact any of them. I didn't want to bring up any, any thing that they didn't want to talk about. I just didn't want to take that chance. Um, It was a conversation though with the publishers like, Hey, let's, let's reach out to some of the victims families and get their side that we can put it in the book. So we did have conversations about that. I just, I don't know. I just didn't, didn't want to do it. I didn't feel comfortable doing it. That's understandable. So. Yeah. And who knows what the future will bring. Mm-hmm. You, know, you, you never know. So um, that, yeah. Sure. And then also, do you think that you made an impact on any of the guys there? Do you think you made any sort of impact? I feel like they liked it when I was there. I feel like they definitely liked having someone to talk to um, that wasn't a priest you know, they get, they get that sort of thing, which is fine and great. I'm not a priest or even close to a priest. So I wasn't, I wasn't, I I couldn't talk to them about religion and that sort of thing. It's just not my thing. But I think they, I would talk to them about football teams, baseball teams, you know, anything, anything else. So I think they enjoyed that. I think it took them by surprise. I didn't have an agenda, you know, they would, Stanko told me that I was being sized up and by everybody and no one would talk to me if they didn't think I was genuine and real. So that, you know, that's a good thing, but I'm sure they wondered, you know, who's, who's this guy? I'm a younger, younger person, not, not used to seeing that. So I think they enjoyed talking with me afterwards. I don't know what lasting impacts, Probably not. Honestly, I wouldn't, I would say probably not. Um, but I don't know. I mean, we weren't, we weren't having heart to heart conversations and deep, deep, deep stuff, like I said, but, um, some of them got a little deeper, but yeah, it was all, they were in, they were in control of everything with me. Like they were, they were in control of it. You know, I would ask questions and I, I ended up being able to ask, I felt comfortable asking whatever I wanted to at the end, you know, and I knew it was coming to an end. I started to feel pretty comfortable going in. I wasn't that nervous anymore. Walking into a maximum security prison by myself, going through the gates. I knew how to get to death row. I knew, you know, like, and that was one of the reasons why I stopped because I didn't, I didn't want them getting too comfortable. I didn't want them seeing me as a friend. I didn't want them, I just didn't want that. I felt like I was getting too comfortable and that was when I needed to stop. Um, yeah, because coming from from our family and you guys, I'm going to get into this in, in probably next week's episode, talking to victims' families and what how they would feel about having my brother go in and talk to their killers and giving them that opportunity to have a, quote, friend. You know, like, you're not their friend, but just having that voice. conversation. A voice. Yeah, but you're yeah. having those conversations of football and stuff that, that – that these victims' families, I know our family, we would love to have those conversations with Egypt, but we don't right. get those conversations. So it's, it's, it is, it's such a fine line on here. You are, you're giving them that opportunity, which I don't know how I feel. I don't know if I feel, yeah, you guys, they are alive. The fact of the matter is they're alive. Their victims are, are not alive anymore. That's the fact. So do we treat them like caged animals or do we treat them like human beings that could 
possibly maybe have some change in them. I don't know. I'm not saying that I, that I believe one way or the other. Um, but, but I, I could say from victim's advocate is saying, okay, so a victim Stanley might say, well, shit, why are you talking to the man that killed my daughter, my son, and you get to go in and shoot the shit with him and talk about basketball or football or, um, Mm -hmm when that's all I want, they don't deserve anything. They deserve to be, you know, and I'm not looking for an answer from you. I'm just saying that that's, it's Mm. because we don't know what's right or wrong. We're just doing what instinctually that's what you did. And there are people who work at these places too. And, you know, correction officers, wardens, administrative staff, and their job is to keep peace, you know, keep everybody safe. And I think if you stop volunteers from going in and you stop that from happening, you're going to have a big problem, a bigger problem on your hands. Probably if you're just shutting them down with no, no opportunities to of the outside world whatsoever or talk to a human being, then I think that is a negative impact on the people who work there. And really, I mean, we're, if you're going to, rehab people which is what prison is supposed to do right then doing the opposite of that is has the negative effect in my opinion most people most people get out of prison i mean obviously the people on death row probably aren't um but they still have to get along with people inside the prison whether it's the guards the cafeteria you know like they have to do that so I think it helps in that aspect. I'm not saying that I helped in that aspect, but I'm just saying talking to human beings from the outside. Yeah. It I can only help. It can only help that. It can't hurt that. And if I certainly understand victims' families saying that, that they don't deserve it. Maybe they don't. Maybe they don't deserve it. Um, but I wasn't I wasn't giving them giving them anything in right. my mind that would that would be um <laughs> I, I agree know. with you and i know i, no, I, I agree that, I, it's but... hard to say but i agree with you 100 percent um i i i do because that's yeah. how i feel about even that's how i feel about they were always in my mind they yeah i mean the victims were always in my mind i mean i made a mistake after the first time going and i looked up i went and googled them all of course when i get home and i read about what each one of them did it gives you a whole new perspective when you go back again, because the first time, yeah, I knew, I knew they were on death row and I know what you have to do to get on death row, but I didn't know the, I didn't know that um, this guy killed his three month old daughter by putting her on the back of the crib and breaking her back because she wouldn't stop crying. But now when I see this guy's face, I know that he's what he's capable of. I know what he did. And I didn't know that this guy was just shooting people on a park bench for target practice. But now I do know that. And now I am talking to him. Yep. And I know that this guy wrote messages to the police in his victim's blood on the wall and shot his buddy when he got out of the truck. But now I do know that. And I know, and I can put faces with that. So that made it more real for sure for me. Um, because they can put on that facade just like anybody. I mean, people are crazy. You talk to people every day. We talk to people every day who we don't know what they're capable of. People are capable of crazy stuff. And, 
and they can turn around and manipulate you and tell you that everything's great and they're happy and everything's good when you know that you know that's not true um so i don't know it's i know because i truly believe i, I don't know selfishly i went in for curiosity and then it turned into something more turned into okay my curiosity is there but now i want now i got questions you know <laughs> now i got these questions that i want answered and yeah. so then it turned into that yeah i yeah. feel like after reading your book i feel like there's some people on death row that rehabilitation would would be helpful to them i'm not saying that that would get them out i'm just saying it would be helpful to no. them but there are many people on death row that you spoke to that rehab would do nothing for they are just so no. fucked up in no. their mind and so so it's just it's that's where i stand on all of it is that but but we are human and there's human error and and who is to say that um what i say is right what you say is right what the what the judge says is right what it does it, it, it just so that's yeah. I know we could talk for hours you guys this is such a such a big topic and that's why i feel like i'm going to keep bringing up i do think I do think the victim's family should have a bigger say in what happens, you know, because prosecutors and tell us what closure, what will bring closure. But I think the families need to say what will bring closure. Like the victim's families need to tell the jury what will bring them closure. Maybe closure will be put them in prison. I don't want to hear from them again. Maybe that's, maybe that's closure for a family, but yeah. So, oh my gosh, you guys, so this has been a longer episode, but I just, um, we could go on forever and there are so many more. If you guys saw all the tabs that I had in his book, <laughs> all the questions that I have and all the points that were so intriguing to me, literally I tabbed almost every page in his book. So, um, Steve, before we get off, where can, I've had a lot of people message me, where can I get your brother's book? So, um, and then also, while you're answering that, can you tell them how they can get a signed an autographed book? Because I've had a lot of people say, it's your brother. Can you get it autographed? I'm like, I think so. <laughs> so can that, is yeah, that I mean, happen? Where do you want them? Where do they, where should they purchase your book? Ideally you go to Eve post books. That's E V E P O S T B O O K S.com. That's straight from the publisher. Um, but you can also get it on Amazon. You can get it at Barnes and Noble, Target, Walmart, any of those stores online. Um, I'm an Amazon guy because you'll have it the next day. So <laughs> go to Amazon's the easiest way to do it. Um, the signed copy. Uh, <laughs> message me. You, you can, yeah. I mean, I have a few few books on hand. Um, that's the good thing about the books these days. You don't just get a box full of books and keep them in your garage. They, they print them on demand. Um, Amazon has a bunch of them like they, they do that, but I, I'm happy to sign them. I just, it's a little bit trickier. Um, if, if you can go through Lindsay and, uh, then we can kind of correlate how many books that that'd be the easiest way to go. Okay. Um, but yeah, Amazon, Amazon's the best, the best place to get it in my opinion. Yeah. Awesome. And then, if he signs it, you guys, he always writes, and I'm just gonna, I'm just gonna let the cat out of the bag. You can say it. You always sign it with shake, shake with your left hand. What in the hell does that mean? Because I'm a righty. Shake with your right hand. Yeah. So uh, one of the conversations, this was the first time, you know, I'm shaking their hands, 
And then I get to this one guy and I, you know, he puts his hand through the door and I go to shake it. And he said, no, 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 no. Only, I only shake your left hand. I've seen you shake all of these guys hands with the right hand. And I know what they do with their right hands. (laughs) (laughs) So yeah, that's why. So then I sign them all only shake with your left hand. And then they, people realize after the first chapter, what that means. (laughs) Pretty gross, huh? It is. It's disgusting, but it's Pretty so gross. true. Yep. And then, and then you guys, he continued to shake people's right hands. What <laughs> are you going to do? In your defense, right? I was going to say. In your what are you going to do if a guy on death row sticks his hand through the, through the, through the door to shake your hand? What are you going to do? You're going to shake his hand. Yeah, you're def. I'm not. I'm definitely not going to say. Oh, can I have the left? Because I know what yeah, you do with your right. Give him a fist bump. Because they could have, Steve, they could have pulled you in as hard as they could, and you would have been, like, face first into the bars. Yeah, they could have. I mean, I'd be lying if I told you that never crossed my mind. I mean, that crosses your mind when you yeah. walk into a place like that. Um, I just picture who... you, like, like flat Stanley, but you'd be flat Steve. Like, again. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that would suck. That would suck. <laughs> they could have just pulled you right in. They could have pinned me against if they wanted to. Sure, they could have. How I don't close know. are the guards? What's that? How close are the guards if that would have happened? I mean, they were in the the little lobby part in their um, central. Yeah, control. you would have already had a broken nose and yeah. <laughs> it would have ended badly for me if, the, if somebody did that. <laughs> I mean, they could have snapped my arm off, I guess. I don't know. But yeah, it, it crossed my mind. But everything kind of crosses your mind when you're in there yeah but i'm not gonna leave them hanging either but you know what steve you're gonna live your dash to the fullest living it living you the dash. Have to buy his book to know what that means there's your plug there <laughs> living my dash living your dash yep you guys will get yep. that once you read his book so all right steve thank you so much this was thanks for having me super cool and um people are gonna love it and so you guys check him out uh unfortunately he doesn't have like a front row on death row facebook page or anything he's a uh, he's just steve schoenfeld um on that's got to be enough <laughs> yeah that enough? <laughs> that's enough but um you guys thank you so much steve and um i'm sure i'm gonna have a ton more questions and i'm sure i'm gonna have a bunch of listener questions too and hopefully maybe we can do another q a i think that'd be kind of cool with people great yeah sounds good appreciate you having me yes fun yes all right you guys i am so proud of my brother and i cannot wait to continue this conversation next week we are going to give you a story to make you wonder if people truly can change Ron Burris has a compelling story that will pull at your heartstrings, and he just may help you believe in the rehabilitation system within the prisons. He went from a drug dealer, a criminal, and a thief to a loving father, an amazing husband, a churchgoer, and a model citizen. You will not want to miss his story. You guys, keep an eye out for my Patreon to launch on August 1st, 2021. 
I am so excited to give each of you another outlet to help so many grieving families. Through this monthly subscription, you will be able to speak face-to-face via Zoom with both me and Dwayne every month, and we will have many more opportunities available as well. More details to come on Facebook at Can't Stop, Won't Stop, and at MyLindsayAnn on Instagram. You guys, if you enjoyed this episode, please give me a five-star review on Apple Podcasts. This is free, and it will help get awareness to the public about the many injustices happening to so many grieving families. Thank you so much for all of your support. Also, you can check out can'tstopwon'tstop.store to purchase merchandise. You guys, that's can'tstopwon'tstop.store. You know, I don't know why so much pain and loss has to happen. I don't have all the answers. It has been nine years since Tanner Barton was taken from all of us. And And it has been four years since Brittany Bell and Egypt Covington were both taken from all of us. It has been too many years of obstacles and lies from people they trusted and from the police. It has been too many years that no family should ever have to go through. Tanner, Brittany, and Egypt, we can't stop and we won't stop fighting for you and every other victim that deserves justice. Please be sure to join our Facebook group, Can't Stop, Won't Stop, for more information, where Dwayne and I go live every Sunday night at 8 p.m. Eastern. You can also follow me on Instagram at MyLindsayAnn. A huge thank you to singer and songwriter Mr. Peace for allowing us the rights to use the song Where'd You Go featuring our beloved Egypt Covington. We appreciate you. Can't wait for next week. No, God.